0: Well, I invite you to look over to Ephesians chapter 5, and I have to tell you something. I thought I had one more message on the women, and I do, and I'm going to do that in the, at the conclusion to the, to the teaching on the husband. So I'm gonna punt that, Uh, if you look down in your Bible in Ephesians 5 verse 33, he gives a summation there and it says, however, let each one of you love uh, his wife um, as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. So as I wrap that series up, I will return back to the wife's role as well as a summation of the husband's role. Uh, this morning, we want to move to the husband's role. It is, understatement, the greatest paragraph ever written in the human language on the roles of a husband and wife. It's the Word of God. It is the greatest statement ever written in even the Scripture because I think in one sense, it's the longest statement on these roles. And so, we come to a transforming truth, and it is on the Word of God and the husband's role. Let me read the text for you, and I'll just read 25 to 28. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Let's just bow and ask the Lord to help us. Father, would you speak your word in this place? To these men, to the husbands represented in this place, would you give a vision to the single men in this place? And Father, would you help our single women marry this type of man? Father, may your word by your spirit penetrate our hearts. Father, for your glory and the home's peace, And happiness. So, Lord, we love you and we give thanks this day in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've titled this series, The Gospel Comes Home. And so, this is message number three. We really just find ourselves in the exposition of the book of Ephesians. And this is God's design for happiness in the home. And for his glory and his design for happiness in the home, I said the last two weeks, is a thoughtful, intelligent, gentle, spirit-filled, submissive wife. And his design in the home is for a godly, self-sacrificing, spirit-filled, loving husband. There it is. This is what he wrote. The one who created marriage, the one who gave and brought the first marriage into existence pre-fall is the very author of this book by the Spirit's role in the life of Paul. Now, I said before that all of this is conditioned on the Spirit's filling in 518. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That these roles of the wife and husband respectively, even the children are impossible apart from the Spirit of God. In the last two weeks, we spent the, the, the Sunday on the wife's role, namely submission, and now we turn to the husband's role. We turn to the husband who was described in 523 that just as Jesus is the head of the church, The husband is the head of his wife. So we turn now from her role to his role, to his role of leadership, to his role of authority. It's given to him by God, even prior to creation. So here, as we come into 525, Paul is explaining and even defining male headship and leadership. Now as we walk through this in 425 down through 32 in this wonderful passage I would put it this way that there are four truths that describe the husband's role in the home for God's glory and for your joy. So I just want you to know this is a word from the living God to you husbands and how to create a place of health and harmony. Here's the four truths. We're going to look at the mandate of love that is stated, and that becomes the central focus. The mandate of love stated is love. It's mentioned in verse 25. It's mentioned in verse 28, and it's mentioned in verse 33. Then we're going to talk about the model of love that he illustrates for us, and the model, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, even as I say to you, this is about the husband's role, it's actually about the perfect husband who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, who laid down his life for the church, and now he then therefore gives the husband's role. But we're gonna look at the mandate, the model, and then I'm gonna say the, the mission of love is revealed. The mission is there's three clauses in 26 and 27 that he might present the church in all her glory, that he might sanctify you, and so there's a mission For the reason that he died for the church, that a husband is to live out. And then finally, the manner of love is practiced. Now, I don't want to lose you here, but look down at verse 28. You'll see he begins there in the same way. So he's illustrating something. Husbands, it says, should love their wives. So we're going to dive deep theologically. We're going to dive deep into the truth. And then by the time we get to the manner of love that is practiced, then you'll understand in the same way that Jesus lived and died is a husband's role in the home. But I do want to say very directly to you that if you're a husband, this is for you. Let him who speaks Speak, as it were, 1 Peter 4.10, is the oracles of God. This is your role. There's nothing other than to say than that. This is direct to you, okay? And I want to challenge you, as I challenge my own heart, to be this man in your character, okay? Single men, this is the standard for you. Obviously, you're to live out a character that we see in the men that were on the platform to lay hands on, certainly not perfect men, but men that are above reproach. And if you're a single man, this is what you're to be as a husband, and you need to lock it in your grid, if you will. Single women, you don't have to, you're, not that you would tune me out, marry this guy okay? Marry this guy. In fact, we're going to have a sign-up table. I'm joking. But marry this guy, okay? This is who you ought to be attracted to. This is the type of man where you can serve God's kingdom together. So let's just dive right in, okay? We won't get as far as all four of those truths revealed, but we'll get a couple out. But first, the mandate of love, it's stated The mandate of love is stated, husbands, look at verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a tremendous statement. This is a single command. This is as direct as possible. The husband's mandate here stated is to love your wives. It's fascinating, just obvious. He doesn't tell you to rule your wife. He doesn't tell you to be harsh with your wife. He doesn't tell you to command your wife. He doesn't tell you how she can serve you. And though she finds herself in a place of voluntary submission, Paul comes back and gives this direct mandate to love your wife. Now, I don't think I have to say it here, but I will for the sake of teaching. This is what kind of love? You know that. This is agape love. You are to love her. That's the word for love. And it is a self-sacrificing love. Men, here's your role in a statement by the word of God. You are to love your wives or your wife unselfishly is the thought, okay? Agape love is the strongest, most intimate, far-reaching, comprehensive term for love that is possible. That's the command that he gives to you. Now, just a little groundwork here. This love is in the present tense, and it is a command. It's an imperative. I think you understand that a husband is to continuously love his wife. This is not something you do at the altar when you just give your vows and then you're done. This is a continuous command. I think I'm glad that it is a continuous command because one time I heard that a man uh, told his wife that at his marriage that he loved her. And he told her that if it changes, he'll, he'll let him know. But he never told him told her I love you again. So listen, this is a continuous command. And I do want you to know, just for the sake of argument, contrary to our culture, this agape love is not an emotion. Certainly could become that, but it's not an emotion. It's not a feeling that you feel that you're going to get when you get that feeling. It is an act of the will to give yourself unselfishly to meet the needs of your wife, to love her sacrificially, to love her unselfishly. In fact, in one Greek lexicon, BDAG, you don't have to know what that is, it gave a little bit of a nuance here. It means to cherish her, okay? Now, Paul penned this radical unbelievable statement in a very impure world. Unbelievable, not it's believable, but the, the way that he penned this and the world in which he was writing was incredible. In fact, let me just give you a little historical background. It came from William Barclay, and he was talking about the culture in which Paul wrote. Because if I say, Husbands, love your wife, you're gonna say, I've heard that. And I think we miss the radical nature of it when we understand the history that it comes out of. The Jewish people, Jews, then Greeks, then Romans, the Jews, in theory, um, had the highest idea of marriage, at least in the culture. The rabbis said this, quote, every Jew must surrender um, his life rather than commit adultery or murder or uh, idolatry. In other words, surrender your life, but don't do one of those three. In another piece of Jewish history, they said the very altar... If you will, sheds tears when a man divorces the wife of his youth. The altar weeps, if you will. But, beloved, the fact was that by Paul's day, divorce, even in the Jewish com- community, had become tragically easy. In fact, divorce is summarized, coming up on the screen in Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife, and he marries her, they use this and I'll show you how. Watch the words. If then she finds, underline that, no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. They would just, they took the law wrong. And look at other scriptures. He would just write her a bill of divorce and she's out of the house. Now everything turned on what was meant by some indecency. The stricter rabbis, uh, he was, it was headed by the famous rabbi, his name was Shammai, held that the phrase meant some indecency. Adultery alone and declared that even if a wife was as mischievous mischievous as Jezebel a husband must not divorce her except for adultery okay but the more liberal rabbis led by the equally famous Hallel, interpreted that phrase, some indecency, in the widest possible way. They said that it meant that a man might divorce his wife, and I'm quoting here, I'm not making this up, if she spoiled his dinner by putting too much salt in his food. If she walked, these are quotes, in public with her head uncovered. Can you imagine if you're walking and somebody said, hey, what happened to Saul and Martha's marriage? Well, she was down on Draper Street with her head uncovered. I mean, this is how uh, foolish it got. If, if she talked with men in the streets, if she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's parents and her husband's hearing, or if she was a brawling woman, Not sure what a brawling woman meant, but that's what they said. I don't think, maybe she was an MMA fighter, I don't know. But she was a brawling woman. There was a certain rabbi by the name of Akiba who interpreted the phrase, if she finds no favor in his eyes, to mean that a husband might divorce his wife if he found a woman whom he considered more attractive. See, it's easy to see which school of thought ruled in Judaism. It was Hallel. A wife had no rights of divorce unless her husband, in some cases, became a leper, or he became an apostate, or he engaged in some kind of disgusting trade. So, broadly speaking, a husband under Jewish law could divorce his wife for any cause, And a wife could divorce her husband for virtually no cause. In fact, in a morning prayer, this is written down, a Jewish man gave thanks to God that God had not made him like a Gentile or a slave or thirdly, a woman. So I just want you to know at the time Of Christ's ministry and the writing of the Apostle Paul, marriage, um, the marriage bond was in peril among the Jews. Then there's a group of Greeks. That's my family lineage. Um, It was even worse. Prostitution was rampant in the Greek world. Demosthenes said, here's what he said, we have mistresses for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. So they had mistresses, they had concubines, and they were married and you dutifully take care of the home. In fact, in respectable uh, classes, the women in Greece led a completely secluded life. In fact, in some accounts, she never appeared on the streets alone, never appeared even at meals, never appeared at social occasions, and she had her own apartment that only her husband could enter. One Greek by the name of Xenophon put it, Quote, that she might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. This is the background in which Paul wrote. In fact, you've heard of this man, Socrates. He said, quote, is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? family life was disintegrating at this time. That's the Jews, the Greeks, then there's the Romans. Uh, The Romans, it was just in shambles. Uh, You can read at least in history that for the first 500 years of the Roman Republic, there was not one single case of divorce. But by the time Paul wrote, Seneca said this, that women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. Jerome put it this way, he said in Rome, there was a woman who was married to her 23rd husband and she herself was his 21st wife. I mean, you can understand, it was chaos. And if I could just say to you, it is almost humanly impossible to exaggerate the cleansing effect that Christianity had on the home life. Christianity in history liberated women, women in the truest possible way by providing peace and roles in the home. And it is against this backdrop that Paul pins this fabulous mandate to the husbands. Love your wives. If I could succinctly say it, I would say, here's the command. Die to yourself. Die to your desires. Die to your interest for the benefit of your wife. So the wife is commanded to submit as to the Lord, but she's submitting voluntarily to a husband who is commanded to love her and to die and sacrifice for her. But you might ask, hey, Scott, what does that look like? And I would say thanks for asking that question. Look at the text. I'll tell you exactly what it looks like. Look in verse 25. Love your wives... As here's his illustration, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The model here is Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful because none of you husbands would have any excuse if you're in Christ, if you're filled by the Spirit, you could never say, I just wasn't raised in a good home. Can't say that because he's gonna move us from the mandate of love stated to the model of love illustrated, okay? And the model of this love is Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Just as, or as, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It might beg the question, which would then therefore mean that a model here is not leaders, though that would be phenomenal. It is not a group of elders, though elders should model this. It is not here stated to be pastors or fathers. It is not even stated to be your favorite Bible teacher here, beloved, as not only does he state what love is, but he models it and the model is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see that word, look again at verse 25, as Christ loved, this is not so much why a husband should love his wife, but how a husband should love his wife. And so just as Christ loved the church, so you have an incredible statement, in 22 and 24, that a wife is to submit to her husband in everything, and it's matched here by an incredible statement and mandate that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And so you're saying, okay, that's my mandate to love, but how exactly did Jesus Christ love the church? Look at the text again. He defines it there. Do you see it? He gave himself up for her. So he loved the church, and he showed that love by giving himself up for the church. Now, look back in chapter 1. We've seen God's love, haven't we? This isn't the only expression of God's love, where it says in Ephesians 1, 4, even as as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then at the end of verse four, the beginning of five, it says, in love, he predestined us. So we see love in other places in the scripture, namely that God chose us. If you go down even to verse six, to the praise of the glorious his glorious grace with which he blessed us, And then it says there, in the beloved, it's an expression of that agape love, in the beloved is in Christ, and Christ himself was loved by God, and so God loved us, and chose us and redeemed us in love, but he loved his son, Jesus Christ, look over at chapter 2 and verse 4 of Ephesians, that great statement that God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And there it speaks of God's great love. And so you have these statements in Ephesians 3 that we would know something of the love of God, the height, the breadth, the depth, and the length. But here, as you go back to Ephesians chapter 5, Christ in this model, in this illustration, demonstrated his love to such an extent that the scripture says that he gave himself up for, do you see that phrase there? Her, who's the her? And I think we understand that's the church. He gave himself up for her, the church. Uh, I would say that's the redeemed community of saints. Christ loved the church. And in that sense, he died for us. Look, if you will, at chapter 5, okay? Back in verse 2. It tells us there to walk in love. And he does this again there. You're commanded to walk in love there and in 4.2. But it says in 5.2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up, Up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so there's the demonstration of that love. Now, this little phrase here, and again, I'm trying to unpack this so that you'll understand your role. And I think the reason I'm doing that is I'll read a lot and I'll listen a lot. And I don't know why, but people just kind of get really squirrely, tell a lot of funny jokes. A lot of funny stories about husbands and wives. And I just think this thing is so earnest that I don't want to get so practical that you miss the model of Christ. Now, it says here that he gave himself. It's a tremendous word. We've seen the word before. The word gave is the word paradokan. It just literally means to hand over, to give over. And what the text is saying is that our Lord voluntarily gave himself up for us. Gave himself up for the church. Gave himself up for the saints. And we know that he did that willingly. In fact, if you're there, look back at 523, where it says that Christ is the head of the church. Verse 23. His body, and then this phrase, and is himself It says there is its Savior. And so he's our Savior. But just think about how much Christ loved the church. It says in the book of Romans in chapter 4 in verse 25 that he was delivered up or he gave himself over. And then the Bible's real clear for your trespasses. He gave himself up for you. Maybe it's illustrated in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love towards us. There's that phrase, love. And that while we were yet sinners, what does it say? Christ died for us. And so here, he's moving into the model of love illustrated. It's Christ. He died for the church, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son in this verse... But gave him up for us all. In other words, God the Father gave over God the Son for you and for the church so that our sins would be forgiven. You've seen these words, like in Galatians 1 4, it says there that he gave himself for our sins, he delivered himself over for the sake of his bride. In fact, it says the same thing in the book of Titus in 2.14, this word peridokan, that he gave himself for us. In other words, Jesus Christ was delivered over for the church. He was delivered over to the Romans, if you will, to the Jewish authorities, but ultimately he did that voluntarily so that we might be redeemed, says in Titus 2.14 from every lawless deed that he would purify himself of people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so he gave himself over is the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. You remember when Paul said that I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And he said, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, and here it's put together, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. He became our substitute for sin. Maybe one more, Mark 10, 45. You know it well, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to what? to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, now, what's fascinating about this, look back at 523, the husband is the head of his wife. Look at that phrase. Even as Christ is the head of the church. And headship, we said, communicates authority. It communicates leadership. But what I found fascinating is historically, that phrase, head, especially in the Roman society, spoke of the emperor. And the emperor, the Caesars, if you will, were protected at all cost. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, quote, Roman citizens were expected to sacrifice themselves for his sake. In other words, you as a member of this society, as a Roman citizen, are to sacrifice yourself um, for his sake. And then they wrote, even to thrust a right hand into the flame. In other words, you do whatever you can to protect the emperor. They even said, quote, throw themselves before the sword of an assassin. So a ninja jumps out. And, he, and, he, you know, and if you're a true Roman citizen, you're going to jump in front of that either sword or that star, and you're going to take it for him. And so there, in that case, the head was not to be called to be the one who loved. Rather, he was the one to be loved. You say, well, why would that be? Well, because the good of the states, in their minds was contingent on the well-being of the head, the emperor, and for the head to endanger himself to them was utterly foolish. But what Paul does, beloved, he turns this traditional idea of the head on its head, if you will. The Lord, as head of the church, sacrifices himself... And now the husband, like Jesus Christ, is to love his wife sacrificially. And so the magnitude of Christ's love is revealed in his sacrificial atonement on the cross for your sins. And I just say to you husbands, to my own heart, this is how a husband is to love his wife and give himself up for her. Now, this does not mean, you know this, that every husband will die literally for his wife. But it most definitely means that every husband must deny himself to express love for his wife. Husband, let me move into this here not wait to verse 28. You are not demanding things of your wife. You are not barking out orders to your wife, but you are ever discovering how you can sacrifice for your wife. Your headship, your authority, if you will, exists not so much in power, but service, whether or not your wife submits to you herself. This is just a high calling. Man, your model to follow is Jesus Christ who gave himself to death on a cross for us and he modeled love for us. And I want you to know that this love of Christ has not, nothing to do with whether it's deserved or not. You know that. There is not a soul on this planet that deserves the love of God. You and I know from Ephesians chapter two, one, we were dead in our, what? Trespasses and sins, okay? We're sinners dead to God until he makes us alive. But Paul is not saying here, husbands love your wives because she's worthy of it, but love her when she's not worthy of it. See, the world says, I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're intelligent. I love you because you make me look good. But biblical love, men, is undeserved and it's sacrificial and it gives up your rights and privileges to your wife. This is just such a high standard. True love is not motivated by the worth of the object Love, rather, is a choice of the will by the husband to extend grace, to extend mercy, to extend forgiveness to his wife, maybe in spite of her unworthiness. Just as a wife should submit to her husband, you know, even if he's not living like this, a husband is to love his wife even in spite of her unworthiness, This is how Christ loved the church. This is how a husband should treat his wife. His love is to be unconditional. MacArthur said it this way, okay? I liked it. I'm going to quote it for you. Sacrificial love is undeserved as exemplified in Christ. It says you, speaking of the husband to his wife, you don't deserve anything but I'll give you everything. You don't deserve anything. You know how he means that. But I'll give you my life. Paul is not saying that we are to say to our wives, you may not deserve all of these things. He says there, but you're, he says to the wife, but you're a sinner and you might not be all that you could be, but I will love you. And I will commit myself to you, even when you're the least deserving. I will give you everything I have. I will even die for you, end of quote. I mean, just think for a second, beloved. And this is an understatement. The one who had the greatest power, the one who has the greatest authority the one who's seated at the right hand of God, the one who dwelt in unapproachable glory, the one who is the second person of the Trinity, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who even now is sustaining our world, put himself in the gravest position to save his wife, the church. That's what he did. He died on behalf of an unworthy church. The church was and is, in, and is sinful and unworthy and he gave himself for her. That's the model of love illustrated. But men, listen. Here is a love that cannot be diminished. Here is a love that cannot be killed. Here is a love that self-sacrifices everything for the sake of your bride. Here is a love that dies to self. This is a high standard. Don't let any, and I speak this graciously, not as though the women have faults, but you understand what I mean. Don't let any of her failures keep you from loving and sacrificing for her. If she lets you down in some way or doesn't provide you the kind of support you want or doesn't somehow supports you with the words you want or the intimacy you want, and you begin to belittle her and demean her and neglect her, and in some way you put her down with cunning comments, then you are not loving her as Christ loved the church and gave himself to the greatest suffering, to the greatest indignity in order to save his wife, the church in spite of her unworthiness. For a man to say, you understand this, to his wife, well, I just don't love you anymore. Yeesh. Do you understand the magnitude of that? In other words, I loved you at the altar, but time has passed, feelings have changed, I just don't love you anymore. Or a man to say, we just can't get along. Or it's better actually that we're just not together. So very opposite of Christ. Maybe you've heard this syllogism before. What is a marriage and it's put in percentages? Some would say it's a 50-50 proposition. You give your part. She gives her part. I think Rocky Balboa, the Southpaw slugger, said that to Yo Adrian. Yo, you fill my gaps and I fill your gaps. So it's kind of like, you know, it's 50-50. Other people say, no, 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 really what a marriage is, is 100% and 100%. It's 100% for a husband giving himself. It's 100% for a wife and I understand that. But biblical love, men, if I could put it this way, is 100% zero. In other words, this is who you are in response to your wife because you're mandated to love her like Christ loved the church. So here's the mandate and the model of a husband's love, and Christ is the model let me just ask you a question, wives. Do you think if your husband acted in the description that I'm painting here from the Word of God, that you would have a tough time submitting to him? I think no. I see some of you smiling. I mean, this is the heart of what a woman longs for, for a husband who loves her sacrificially. We are told, in one of the Greek histories, that the wife of one of the generals of Cyrus, who was the the king, the ruler of Persia, was accused of treachery, the wife was. She was condemned to die, and at first her husband did not know what was taking place, but as soon as he knew what was going on and heard about it, he rushed into the palace, he burst into the throne room, he threw himself on the floor before the king, and he cried, "'Oh, my Lord, Cyrus!' take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. And Cyrus, at least by all historical accounts, was a noble man, was touched by what this husband did on behalf of his wife. And he said, quote, love like that must not be spoiled by death. Then he gave the husband and the wife back to each other and let the wife go free. As they walked away happily, the husband said to his wife, Did you notice how kindly the king looked at us when he gave, us, gave you the pardon? The wife replied, I had no eyes for the king. I only saw the man who was willing to die in my place. And that's nothing compared to what Jesus did for you. That's, he took all your sins. He buried them in the deepest part of the sea. He forgave all your past sin, all your present sin, all your future sin. All of that came through the vicarious, substitutional atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that why we we're yet sinners. Christ what? He died for us. Husbands, this is not an option. It's a mandate given to you by God. Your model is Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, who willingly, voluntarily laid down his life for a church that only deserved hell. So here's the gospel coming home. You want there to be joy in your home, happiness in your home, peace in your home? Listen, God's design for happiness in the home is a thoughtful intelligent, gentle, spirit-filled wife set alongside a godly, self-sacrificing, self-sacrificing, spirit-filled, loving husband. You say, well, Scott, okay, he died for the church, but he died for what purpose? And that's the manner of love or the, 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 the mission of love revealed. And to hear that, you got to come back next week, Okay.